Hello and welcome to the latest episode of When Sky Invented Football, the sometimes not so beautiful game viewed from the wrong end of a rolled up fanzine. This time we'll be chatting to John Nicholson, Middlesbrough sufferer and football writer, author of the hugely successful polemic Can We Have Our Football Back? It is a brilliant book, not just because I agree with virtually everything it says, although I do, but because John says it so well. My name's Adrian Goldberg, founder of Britain's first national football fanzine off the ball in the 1980s. Before we talk to John, I just want you to know that I'm the annoying so-and-so who can say, I told you so, but I can. Back in February 1986, I interviewed the Manchester United director, Maurice Watkins, at Old Trafford about plans for what was then being called a Super League, a breakaway from the oldest football league in the world, being engineered by United themselves, along with Everton, Liverpool, Spurs and Arsenal. At the time, the clubs were demanding a greater share of the revenue, which was at that time shared amongst 92 clubs in the league, with the warning that if they didn't get what they wanted, that breakaway was inevitable. They got much of what they wanted, but still broke away anyway. Six years later, the Premier League was created. Proof that you can't appease a bully. You have to stand up to them. Now, when I wrote up that interview for issue two of Off the Ball, I said, and I quote, it is money and money alone which lies at the root of the Super League threat. Now, you might think that as insights go, that ranks alongside identifying the Pope's religious affiliation or describing the toilet habits of bears. But believe me, in the mainstream media at the time and through the years since, the idea of a league built on greed hasn't lacked for cheerleaders in both the print and broadcast media. John Nicholson clearly isn't one of those and can we have our football back isn't just a lament for what football was, it's a handbook for what it could be. John Nicholson, welcome along, great to have you with us. Thanks Adrian, nice to be here. John, reading your book, I'm intrigued that you say that when the Premier League came along, and I'm assuming you're a fan of similar vintage to me, you didn't necessarily see it as a threat. You just thought, oh, something, something's changed a little bit here. Yeah, that's, that's a great point, Adrian. When I was going back and uh, writing the book and I was revisiting my memories of that period, I don't remember it when it came in as being that bigger thing. You know, I mean, maybe it was, maybe my memories are deceiving me, but to me it was just almost like a brand change. It didn't seem that significant. It wasn't sold to us as the actually the earth-shattering, model-breaking concept that I actually was. I may not have just been paying attention properly at the time and worrying about Middlesbrough too much, but um, now looking back on it, the fundamental change that it made when... On that first day of the first Premier League season, when Teddy Sheringham scored that goal, I didn't realise that football would be locked away behind a paywall forever and that we would never see a top-flight game without paying money uh, to watch it on television. I, d- I, don't re- I don't remember paying for it. I don't think I paid for it until the mid-90s. Um, so I would just watch Match of the Day highlights just like I always did. And so it, I think that's why it didn't seem any different. You just turned on at half ten, came in from the from the pub, five pints to the worse, and you just sat down and watched it, and it, nothing seemed to have changed. But, of course, in reality, everything had changed. And um, I only wish I knew that at the time, and I could have fought it harder than I did. 
But I have to say, it just came in under the radar. Suddenly, there it was. What we were going, what were we going to do about it at that point? You know. When did you first start to have doubts about the Premier League? Well, I'll tell you when it was. It was when it was reported that we were paying Alan Boxage £64,000 a week in what would be 1997, And uh, I just couldn't believe that anybody could earn that amount of money in a week, no matter what they did, let alone be a footballer, but anybody. And um, I found it a betrayal of everything that I loved about football, which was that it was born out of the working class, born out of the local community, born out of local industry. And that, to so reward people for doing this working class sport, felt morally wrong. And I think it was, I must have been feeling that for some time. But that really hardened it for me. I thought, £64,000 a week? No, I'm not having it. I don't know. And it, and it was at that point where I started to wonder, really, um, you know, what was behind all of this? What was the matrix behind the apparent reality? And so, I mean, I think I swallowed it down for a long time. I, For many years, I just, I was told and I kind of went with my romantic side to think it's just football, just enjoy the football, just enjoy it. Don't think about it, just enjoy what it is. But increasingly, as we got into the 2000s, and I think when Abramovich turned up particularly, I just it started to become all about money. And people talked about football as though it was all about money. And so it was shopping, and it wasn't sport at all. It was how many £50 million strikers can you buy? You know, what people's wages are. It may seem strange to people who are perhaps under the age of 35, but for 20, 20 25 years that I followed football, the first 25, 26 years, I don't think I ever talked about money at all. We didn't talk about transfer fees. We didn't talk about how much anybody was getting paid. We just took the sport for what it was and we enjoyed it for what it was. We weren't we were obsessed with what the club owned or how much it could buy, you know, anything like that. It was just we took it as our local institution. We went and watched and then we went home. Now, that will seem really odd now, and I'm not necessarily saying, and I'm glad that in your introduction you said that my book isn't a, a, um, a kind of nostalgia trip, because it absolutely isn't that. Um, and it's not about saying the past is better than now, per se. It's about saying what was good about how it was and what is bad about how it is now. And, uh, and then drawing those two experiences together to postulate how we can have a better football um, and not one that is just all about money. Yeah, when I started this podcast, and there will eventually be a, a documentary film of this name, When Sky Invented Football, I was really keen to emphasise that I'm not on a nostalgia trip. I started making football fanzines in the mid to late 80s because there was so much wrong with football that I, as a fan, felt needed to be addressed and put right. But the fact that there were things wrong in the 80s doesn't mean that everything that has happened since then has been to the good. Some of it has been, and you're good enough to acknowledge in the book, that the television coverage itself from the likes of Sky and BT, at some level, it's impossible to imagine it being better than that. Some of it is absolutely fantastic. 
but at a price. And I don't just mean your monthly subscription to those TV services. The price has been something that has corroded the soul of football. That is absolutely, I think it's almost unchallengeably true, to be honest. I mean, I asked a question uh, a few weeks ago on uh, uh, on one of my columns. Um, was football better in the old days? Now, I didn't specify when the old days were, and I just left it up to people um, to decide whenever that was in their own lives. And everybody, and I mean everybody, said it was. Now, that is partly because we all have a sense of, um, usually it's between the ages of 10 and 20. Um, when we, Whatever period that was when you grew up through it, you look upon that with a kind of rosy glow of nostalgia. And I thought that was very interesting. And I thought that we are inclined to see, you know, certain points in our lives as being the golden age. And it's well documented, not just in football, but in society in general, that we do tend to feel a nostalgia for a time gone by, even if it's quite imprecise. So I wanted to discount that. Um, but then, because, I mean, I don't actually feel that romantic about going to the borough in the 70s. I mean, it was brutal, man. You know, it was there was things that were good about it, and 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 you know, obviously, football is a um, is a fascinating and captivating sport. But you know, worrying about getting your head kicked in every week—that's not a pleasant thing. Mm. So I wanted to, I wanted to discount that, but I also thought, what if, what if it was actually better in the past, and that the past being for if you're thirty, perhaps past was. Uh, around the 2000s, um, what if from, say, 2000, 2003, it has got a lot worse? I think it probably has, you know. And this isn't just that kind of nostalgia thing. I didn't want to dwell on that. And I just thought, uh, for example, somebody posted me the link to the um, Keane and Vieira incident in the tunnel, uh, which was 2005, I think. And uh, I looked at that on YouTube, and underneath that, so a massive screed of comments, which is all along the lines of, you never see passion like this anymore. Everything's been corporatized. Nobody would be like this anymore. Everything's so, so you know, bland and anodyne. And I thought, even allowing for the golden age nostalgia, there's something here. There's something going on here. People don't all feel like this unless there is an element of truth about it, you know? Um, so when I was writing the book, I thought, if this is, you know, is it, I, put, I postulate this as a question, is it possible that actually it's getting worse and worse? And if it is, why is that? And I, I come to the conclusion, I don't think it's, uh, it's a kind of massively intellectual leap. It's because of the money. The money is the problem. And once you've actually analysed the money, once you get to the core of the problem, and, and understand why it is as it is, then you can see why it's corrupted the sporting integrity, really, of of the game. And um, so you have to tackle the money first, where it comes from, how it ends up like this. And then once you do that, you can start to address the inequalities in the game. Again, we should be clear, you're not arguing that footballers should be travelling on the bus to the game with the fans as they did in some notional golden age. You want footballers to be well-paid and well-rewarded. But you, you do object to the analogy that is often drawn that 
these are top performers in a big entertainment industry that is in some way analogous to the movies or to being a pop star. My blood is already boiling on it because it really fucking annoys me that. It really annoys me. Because it's just, it's comparing cheese with onions. It's ridiculous, right? If you are, um, actually, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm listening to the autobiography of Phil Collins at the moment, um, uh, a drummer with Genesis, who sold mm. incredibly with uh, solo albums and his, nearly 200 million albums between his solo and Genesis albums. And that's why he's, he's a net worth of about $150 million, 150 million quid. And it's because what he did, remarkably enough, was incredibly popular. Mm. That isn't the same That's a, as, as a footballer's wage. A wage is a guaranteed payment every week. I know that I'm spelling this out because it's really obvious, but people don't seem to understand it. A wage is what you get every week, week in, week out, guaranteed whether you're any good or not. A royalty depends on you being popular. <laughs> now, if footballers' wages depended on being popular, they may be somewhat different to what they are. And uh, I just it always really, really annoys me. If people go, oh, what about movie stars? People don't complain about them getting money. But if you're a movie star, you get a fee commensurate with your popularity to date. You don't get it if you're injured and can't play in the movie. You don't get money if you turn up and you don't know the lines. In football, you get money, enormous amounts of it, whether you're any good, whether you play badly for three months, whether you're great, whether you break a leg. You all get money all the time. And so it isn't the same as anything else in the entertainment industry at all. You know, it's completely spurious to make those comparisons. Um, it's not that I particularly defend, I don't defend extreme wealth wherever it is. I think it's immoral that people have so much when so, so many people have so little. But those two things are not similar. And, uh, and I think this is why a lot of people don't realise this, I think, subconsciously a lot of people make this judgment. But this is why uh, people get so annoyed at players. I mean, a phrase that kept coming back time and time again while I was writing it was the fans' critique of a player would so often on phone-ins start with the line, they earn all that money and, right, always. Now, now believe me, I mean, you know this is true, that was never, mm. ever said mm. before the Premier League. Never said. Nobody ever said about John Hickton, who's Middlesbrough's famous striker, well, they're paying him all that money and he's only scored 15 goals this season. Nobody would have said that. So uh, you can see how money has corrupted how we perceive football and what we think the value of it is. And uh, I find that very troubling. Yes, uh, and of course, the defenders of that system will say, well, look, it's market-driven. The player becomes available. His agent will then negotiate a price with the club that they're going to. And if you, as an employee, or if your agent on your behalf of you as an employee can get a deal where you're earning 300 grand a week, even if you don't play, even if you're injured, even if you're out of form. And at that point in time, the buying club is willing to, in inverted commas, invest that much money in you. Well, you'd be a fool not to take it. Yeah, you see, this is another uh, really important perversion of what we understand as normal economics. This market forces idea, it's true to an extent. If you think market forces is only... Um, you are worth what someone will pay for you. 
which is a simplistic understanding of market forces. But in that sense, if people will pay 400 grand a week for Alexis Sanchez's services, then that's what he's worth. But it isn't normal market economics that drives this. Normally, market economics is um, you uh, basically make a, you survive by making profit, by selling, uh, uh, by having a greater income than your expenditure. That isn't football. That isn't the market forces in football. Nobody on the high street who opens a shop gets a hundred million pounds for opening the shop um, to do what they want with, and that's what distorts the market. All these clubs that are in the Premier League, every season the 20 shareholders getting between 100 to £160 million merely for taking part, that distorts the market. That is a completely warped and perverted version of what we know to be market economics because uh, there is no, uh, basically, uh, there's no need to make any profit because you've already been given all the profit for free. Interesting. Interesting in this time of coronavirus, I noticed that Burnley, a football club who in many respects I admire, but saying that if football didn't resume, and even if it's behind closed doors, they're quite happy with that. But if it didn't resume and they didn't get their television income, their chairman was quoted, I think, on both Sky Sports and on the BBC, as saying that the club could cease to exist. Yeah. And it's that sense, isn't it, of a of a world turned on its head. If you're in League One or League Two, you are still very reliant on your income through the gate. If you're in the Premier League and you're outside the top half dozen of clubs, you maybe get fifty or sixty thousand fans in every week. The economic basis, your economic model, relies not on attracting people in your town and your city through your turnstiles. It relies on you simply staying in that division. And that in itself, for me, warps and poisons football. I speak as a supporter of West Bromwich Albion, and I'm sure this will be similar for Borough fans as well. You get to the Premier League, you achieve this dream, in inverted commas, of getting there. And for what? For, for, For no other than the ambition of finishing fourth from bottom, in order to finish fourth from bottom, you give up on the League Cup, you give up on the FA Cup, and your ambition year in, year out is simply to stay in the competition. And it just becomes a zero-sum game from which the owners potentially can benefit from selling the club, from which the players can benefit because they earn good salaries, but which from a, a paying customer point of view it's a dead end. And that's my ultimate fear is that, you know, I'm hardened to this. I've been here since that age of between 10 and 20 when you fall in love with football, which I did. But coming in as a young fan and seeing that situation, why would you bother? The game is rigged. The dice are loaded. And unless you support one of half a dozen teams, what drives you to go and see your club? It certainly isn't the hope or the expectation of ever winning a trophy. No, this is why I describe the Premier League as dysfunctional, as a competition. Because it isn't a competition, really. All it is is three leagues, essentially. The top six, um, the sort of the middle third, and the bottom six. And that's... Uh, I mean, the loads of those clubs from about 12th downwards, 12th to um, 17th, from about February, you might as well just pack the season in. 
because there's nothing to play for. They're only there to survive another season in order to do it all over again, in order to survive another season, in order to do it all over again. It is pointless. One of the great things about football in the 70s was that at the start of every season, you had no idea, and I mean literally no idea, who would win the league. You could have a guess. It might be Arsenal, as they won the double in 70-71. But three seasons later, they were mid-table. It could be Forest, who were the previous season had been in the second division. That will never happen again. Um, it could be Derby County, who um, came in and out of the top six on a regular basis for about five or six years before actually winning it. You didn't know. What it relied on was a great coach, great recruitment and great training. It didn't rely on shopping for the most expensive players and it didn't rely on effectively what we now call buying the league. Hmm. Now, that and is, John- so I was just going to say, I know that people think that's nostalgia, but that's just better than what we've got now. Well, John, I've done some research for this film when Sky invented football. And in the 80s, when you had a dominant team and throughout history, throughout football history at different times, you've had dominant teams. Huddersfield, I think it was in the 1930s, winning the league three years in a row. You've had powerful teams like Portsmouth and Wolves at different times in football history. And in the 80s, you had a a dominant team in Liverpool. And again, people will understand that a well-managed club with good coaching staff will achieve periods of dominance. But in the 1980s, the years 1980 to 89, 13 different clubs finished in positions one to four of the old first division. In this last decade, only seven clubs have finished in the top four. So your chances of finishing in the top four have dramatically reduced that at a time when the reward for finishing at the top four has of course become significantly higher uh, i just want to reflect a little bit as well on the change within the premier league era john because of course once you only have 20 clubs sharing the financial pie as it were rather than 92 which is what happened when you, the premier league was created of course you you then effectively have a very sharp division from then on between the wealthy and the rest in football. But then into that mixture, you get these clubs owned by oligarchs and oil states, the Abramoviches, you've touched on him at Chelsea, Manchester City, potentially now Newcastle United, Manchester United, already a very wealthy club and bizarrely now in debt in order to facilitate the ownership of the club by American billionaires. But all of these financial forces pushing money towards an even narrower band of clubs and further eroding that competition. And I think also the important thing about that, Adrian, is, um, and this may be just because of my age, I admit that, maybe it's different if you're 20, but just the ownership of clubs being so distant you know, and being not just as these individuals or these dreadful oil states or, um, you know, hedge fund managers or whoever it is, but that's so alienating. I mean, that's like asking you to feel romantic or to fall in love with a global corporation. It's like saying, oh, you know, I, I really love Starbucks. I mean, I suppose people do that. Maybe, maybe I'm just not brand-orientated in that way. But I would be inclined to love a local coffee shop 
that was run by somebody who I would see behind the counter. I would not be in love with it if it was run by a, um, a royal family member in the Middle East. It's as simple as that to me, you know. And without, see, that the core of football are these soulful, deep, civic roots. That's why when it's owned as a kind of tool of extreme capitalism, it feels like something's died. It's as simple as that. And I'll tell you what, just to go back to the thing we were talking about previously, about competition in the Premier League. In the last four or five years, I've never had as many uh, comments from fans of other clubs who are in the championship who say, we'd like to win the league, but we don't want to get promoted. Yeah. Because we love it in the championship because it's a proper league. It is. You don't know who's going to win it at the beginning. Um, you know, you have a chance of um, finishing in mid-table one season and winning it the next, like Norwich did. You know, and it's very competitive. You can lose 10 games in a season and still get promoted. So, we, you know, I understand this totally. And um, because and people say it to me, because for about 15 years now, I've been saying I much prefer Borough in the second tier, the second division. I'm, I still insist on calling it the second division because it is the second division. And um, because all, uh, because it's just more competitive. Mm. If we got promoted, We'd be hanging on to 17th in a white knuckle also. We'd win six games, draw 11, get relegated, whatever it would be. It'd be, it'd be rubbish. And I, I think winning more games in a lower league is a better experience. And more and more people are coming to realise this, I think. They're just thinking, we really just don't want to have to take on a multi-billion pound industry like Manchester City. With, uh, you know, if you're... Um, yeah, I don't know if you're Cardiff City or whatever it is. Yeah. You know, actually, that's that's a bad example. Actually, but anyway, you know what I mean. It's just like it's like being a corner shop trying to take on Harrods, and it just it's no interest to me. People who love the roots of football are really distanced and alienated from the Premier League. Yeah. It feels like it's a different country. It feels like going to the house of somebody incredibly rich when you're from a working class terraced house. You just think, man, that's in for me. I'm out of place here. Mm. Uh, I'm old enough to remember just about the start of punk rock, John. And there was a famous Pink Floyd gig at Earl's Court. And this was the point at which rock music started to become gargantuan and have massive light shows and stage shows. And I remember an article in the Melody Maker, I think it was, which wasn't a magazine I normally read, talking about, the dinosaurs of rock. And this would have been about 1976. And I didn't really understand what that was all about. But I was really enthusiastic for this new thing coming along, which was punk rock. And, you know, in the last few months, I've wondered whether VAR was the Premier League's Pink Floyd Earl's Court moment. The moment, not because there's necessarily anything wrong with trying to get the right decisions in football, clearly there isn't, but the moment when television and football became so intertwined and when the interests of fans or the views of fans became to be just utterly disregarded. And and just kind of thinking about where does football evolve from here? Clearly for the big clubs, the self-described big clubs, there's the option 
maybe even the hope that they will develop some kind of European Super League, rather than waiting for them to bully us again, as they did when the Premier League was created, to the point where you, you, you know, you, you, you're cravenly hoping, can we be admitted to this league? Maybe we should have our own breakaway, John. I do really think maybe the time has come for clubs to say, look, if you want to go off and play with the money of oil barons and global magnets go on go and do your thing f off leave the rest of it to us but you can't drop down to our league if you don't want to come down to us we ain't having you these are the rules and the rules are and i'm just throwing these out there john the rules are that your club to be in my league maybe your league john has to be 51 percent fan owned it has to spend not a penny more in wages and transfer fees than it earns. You'd still have inequalities in that league, but you'd have a much more even league. You'd have a proper competition. And you know what? You wouldn't have that sense of having to try and succeed, as you've described, in the championship in order to get to a promised land that actually you've got no hope of succeeding in and you don't really want to be in. Yeah, I mean, 15 years ago, I wrote about embracing the idea of a European Super League in order to kick the fuckers out um, for exactly that reason. So that if you looked at it after that, I think at the time, I think Everton were fifth or something like that. I can't remember who it was. But anyways, essentially, it gave all those clubs that occasionally get into the top ten, um, if you kick the top six out, it gave them a chance of making the top two or three. I, can't, I still don't see an argument against that, really. Um, but you see, the thing is, those top six clubs won't do that. Um, uh, at least part of them wants to do it. The money men involved want to do it. But the people who are wise at those clubs know that fans of those clubs like to see them playing other English sides. It might seem glamorous to be playing uh, Real Madrid or Inter Milan every other week, but that'll soon tire. The glamour of that will soon tire. And they wouldn't mind playing Newcastle one week. Wouldn't mind playing Burnley another week. And, um, you know, because football is essentially still local, people go and watch it. They're, they're trying to change it into a global kind of arm of the entertainment industry where everybody just sits in a glass box. But it still isn't that yet. And I think they would get a lot of kickback uh, because from fans of clubs who just say, well, actually, I, I like domestic football. And I think that's going to be quite difficult to achieve. But I think in principle, it's a fantastic idea. However, in the book, what I argue for, in in contrast to that, is, is essentially the problem, as we keep coming back to, is money. So what you have to do is neutralise the money. You have to reduce the amount of money that these clubs get, because it doesn't benefit fans at all, with the exception of improvements to stadiums, which could have always been done. Football finances, by the way, have always been appalling. Loads of money at clubs that earn... I mean, football has always generated huge amounts of money for executives and directors. And as you write, the same Manchester United, even back in the 60s and the 70s, had a very strange private share scheme, which, if you look into, is very interesting. Um, but it always benefited a few elite people. And they didn't invest in football grounds, which is why we saw so many of the horrible tragedies of the 80s. You know, the money that football was earning wasn't being invested in football. But nowadays, you know, if you go into the Premier League and since the club is suddenly delivered of £100 million, all that happens 
is inflation. Price of wages goes up, price of players goes up. You, they, that selling club knows you've got the money, therefore it all goes up. So you're not really any better off at the end of it, unless you do a Norwich. And I, and I, and, uh, I would re- highly recommend the borough doing this as well. I'm sure Steve Gibson is very aware of this. It's just like you go up, take the money, spend none of it, go back down, pocket it, live off that for five years. That's a sensible way to do it, but it shouldn't be. But that is just another symptom of the dysfunction. What we need to do is neutralise the money, which just means we have to devalue TV rights. I think that's happening already. We have to have wage caps individually and collectively at clubs so that rich people can't leverage their money in order to pervert competition. We want to make it so everybody has the same income. Um, uh, they can only operate, they can only use the same amount of money for transfer fees, that there is no correlation between the wealth of the individual owners or the wealth that is generated by the clubs and how they can exercise that on, on, uh, with players. So that once you neutralise the effect money can have and you just say, well, everybody has a set amount and then you all have to work with that, then if a player becomes available or fancies a move, he might like playing for Sean Dyche more than likes the idea um, you know, of playing for anybody else, uh, Mourinho or whoever. And he might like living in Burnley more than in Tottenham. Who wouldn't? And <laughs> so, uh, you know, that becomes... And so then it becomes again about development, about managerial, about club vibe. It becomes about the important things, not about money. So that's the that for me is the ultimate aim. We have to neutralize money in the game. Stop it being the thing and just have it as a sort of more equal and egalitarian competition. I don't see what's wrong with that. I don't see why anybody would even object to it. You know, people say, Oh wow, well, you know, we've got to be able to be rich and I mean I do a whole thing in the book about money, the principle of it and how, you know, in the era of global warming how the, the mere acquisition of more and more wealth uh, in players' pockets, you know, con- is, all that's doing is promulgating consumerism. And we know consumer, consumerism is killing the planet. We're using up too many resources. Uh, we, we have to stop. We have to live in a more green way. That doesn't fit with earning £400,000 a week. No, and as you make the point in the book as well, John, not only have you got footballers living on these fantastic salaries, I mean, beyond any reasonable expectation of, in inverted commas, providing for your family for the rest of your life, yeah. for, for, for all of their lifetimes and, and their children's lifetimes. I mean, absurd amounts of money. At the same time, you have many clubs in the Premier League who do not even pay their own staff, their non-playing staff, the living wage. Uh, that yeah. absurdity. Listen, John, I'm going to leave people to discover your book for themselves. Uh, can we have our football back? I know that you've agreed to be a, a regular contributor to this podcast. I think it's time to move the football debate onto our ground because I believe passionately, yeah. John, passionately, that while there will be some fans who disagree with us, of course there will be, that's fine. There are many, many fans who will believe that what we are saying is right and who will... Yeah 
in their waters just know that something is wrong and dysfunctional and rotten and corrupt in the state of football. And, and I feel like right now, like I did back in the 1980s, that unless we as fans stand up and try and save it, I know that might sound very earnest and very kind of full on, but unless we stand up and say, now this is the moment, draw a line in the sand, unless we do it, football could die. I really think that because it is a rotten and corrupt sport that uh, has lost any sense of its fundamental sporting integrity at the top level of the game. We need to remember, and this is why I always say to people, and it's absolutely the core of what I believe, not just in football, but in life, is the people have all the power. Football is played for us, for you and for me. It isn't played for spreadsheets or for boardrooms. Without us, as we have seen so profoundly in the last two months, without us, it dies. It dies. It's done for us. We are the consumers. We pay for it. If we withdraw our support, it goes away. All the millions go away. It all dies. It's an empire built on sand, and we own the sand. So it's time we took power. It's time that we took our responsibility. Don't kowtow to all the money and all the status and all the power. None of that. It's down to us. They need us. Without us, they are nothing. We see the smouldering ruins of the football ecosystem right here and right now because we're not there. So let's use that power for the greater good going forward. Let's not pretend it'll happen if we're not there. It won't. Collectively, we have all the power. Let's use it. John Nicholson, thank you. Cheers, man.